Welcome back to Taiwan Security Review, brought to you by the Global Taiwan Institute. I'm Alex Gray, and we're excited to start off 2022 with a great guest, Elbridge A. Colby, principal at the Marathon Initiative, uh, former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Strategy and Force Development under President Trump, and now uh, the author of the acclaimed The Strategy of Denial, American Defense in an Age of Great Power Conflict, which is getting a lot of attention. Uh, mostly for reasons that are going to be very relevant to this conversation. Uh, Bridge has been a friend of mine for many years and someone for whom I have the greatest respect uh, in terms of his strategic judgment, his vision for the future of American power. And this conversation is going to be, I think, enlightening and wide-ranging on a number of topics from future of U.S.-Taiwan relations to where, where do we stand with American force posture and presence uh, not just in the Taiwan Strait, but in the Indo-Pacific writ large. What does Taiwan need to do to strengthen its own defense? Where does the U.S. fit into that? Um, and how do we manage the different constraints and, and obligations on American power at a time when really the focus, the, the gravitational pull of geopolitics is increasingly becoming that uh, Indo-Pacific region, the Taiwan Strait, and the Western Pacific. So with that, look forward to a great conversation with Bridge. Bridge, thanks for joining us. Great to be with you, Alex. Looking forward to the conversation. So Bridge's latest book, uh, Strategy of Denial, American uh, Defense in an, in an Age of Great Power uh, Conflict, uh, talks a lot about uh, Taiwan, about U.S. priorities in the Indo-Pacific uh, and I want to kind of go and, and take the lens back to 30,000 feet here and ask some fundamental questions that I think get to the heart of why Taiwan matters for the United States, why Taiwan matters within the Indo-Pacific for the U.S. and its partners and its allies, um, and, and get your perspective on, on some of the bigger picture questions. Um, to, to start with, I mean, in, in a nutshell, why does the defense of Taiwan? Why does tai Taiwan's uh, autonomy matter for the United States as a, a geopolitical and a strategic issue? Great. Well, no, I think that's the right way to look at it. I mean, I look at this from, you know, the perspective of Americans' own interests. I mean, enlightened self-interest to be sure, but, you know, I mean, I think American foreign policy should be about Americans' interests at the end of the day. And I think, you know, America's kind of like the only country where people have to blush when they when they make that assertion. But we kind of like lost the lost the bubble on that <clears throat> after the collapse of the Soviet Union for a long time. Well, really, I mean, President Trump, you know, tried to reinject that, but there's been a lot of resistance. Obviously, I would say that the way we look at it is it's critical from a sort of geopolitical perspective and then from a military perspective. So, I mean, I think you know my view. And then this is a live debate, particularly, I think, on the conservative side. Well, it's a kind of thing on the left, too. But, you know, do we need to stick our, you know, face in the wood chipper in Asia? <clears throat> and my view is is not put it in the wood chipper, but stay in, stay involved. And here's why. Because Asia is going to be well over half of global GDP. I mean, we're all going to be working for the Asian market in the future. So we don't want to let China and dominate that huge market area and then set the terms for everybody else because our lives and our liberties at home will will really deteriorate. And the only way we're going to be able to do that is in a coalition because we're not strong enough on our own and we're too far away, you know, et cetera, et cetera. We need we need help. And and of course other countries in the region have an interest in not being dominated by Asia. And that's particularly Japan, 
India, you know, um, uh, Vietnam, potentially, of course, Australia. And in this context, what's happening right now is that what I call think of as like a um, an anti-hegemonic coalition, basically a coalition that's coming together to deny China that that regional dominance. And I think that's a you know a clear goal that, that's coming together. The problem is that's not an automatic process, and the Chinese you know they get it, like they see what's happening. I think, and they have a strong incentive to try to break that apart. And so everybody in Asia, and we know this, and you know this very well from your experience in the White House and so forth, is wondering whether it's prudent to stick their necks out and 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 work in this this coalition together. And the real question here is how reliable is the United States? Because you know it's not because we're the best looking or whatever. We're the strongest you need to have us as kind of the big heavy in this coalition. And it's our word that's going to be the kind of critical glue that's going to hold that coalition together. And that's where Taiwan really factors in because Taiwan is, whether people like it or not, a bellwether. It's a canary in the coal mine for how reliable we're going to be because we, whether we like it or not, we basically are committed to its defense. It doesn't mean we have to recognize an independent country, et cetera, et cetera. But it does mean, you know, and we know this, I mean, security elites, in, in the region, they do look at Taiwan. It's not crazy. It's it's not like looking at Afghanistan or how we behave in Somalia. It's something very directly connected if you're in Japan, let alone like the Philippines. So that's one thing. The second thing, just briefly, is the military significance. If the Chinese break out of that first island chain, our whole position in the Western Pacific is fundamentally compromised. The Japanese have been saying this. They're going to be operating out in the Central Pacific. So we have a strong interest in, in holding Taiwan. That interest is not existential. And that's one of the reasons why it's so important for us to have a credible and effective and focused defense along with Taiwan's own efforts. And that's that's really what lends a lot of the urgency. We're not going to go blow up our whole country to save Taiwan, but we will go far. Um, but we don't want to overdo it. So that's an interesting distinction. Uh, when you think about and that, that was the point I, I was going to get to next was this idea of the island chains, first, second, third uh, and Taiwan's role, uh, former National Security Advisor O'Brien, who's, of course, GTI's Taiwan Task Force chairman, has always used the analogy that Taiwan is the cork in the bottle. Uh, and if the, the cork comes off, that's what's going to, to facilitate China China's ambitions past the first island chain and into the second and beyond. So to, to your point, how significant is it? You said it's not existential, but paint a picture for us of just how significant militarily it would be to have the cork come out of the bottle. Well, very. I mean, I think very. I mean, when I say it's not existential, it means I don't think we should, you know, throw our whole military and lose it for Taiwan's defense. If that's the choice, we're going to have to, you know, preserve. But that doesn't mean that's a good decision. You know, it would have been better for the the for you know to be able to defend. Uh, uh, France in 1940, but at the end of the day, the British decided they were going to evacuate people at Dunkirk. That's not where you want to be, uh, but you, you know, I think you have to reckon with reality. I think the fact, so if we, if we, and I thought about this in the kind of National Review debate I did with uh, Patrick Porter a couple months ago, you know, I think if we think about the day after, as a former colleague, Peter Wilson of mine at Rand, he used to run these day after scenarios. Okay, what's the day after Taiwan's fall look like? Well, militarily, the Chinese are basically going to turn that island into part of, I mean, they regard it as their sovereign territory. They're going to turn it into part of their military power projection. Now they're going to be basically naval forces and air force are going to be operating directly out in the Central Pacific without any inhibition. And those waters are much deeper, so it's much easier to operate. It's kind of harder to stop them from operating, uh, for instance, submarines and so forth. They're going to be looking directly down on the island of Luzon. It's 100 miles from Taiwan. The Japanese, the Nansei, the Southwestern Islands, same, same, 
same story. And and in, at, at that same time, when our military position is that much worse, there's going to be a lot of political concern in Tokyo, in Seoul, in Manila, in Hanoi, because countries are going to be saying, wow, they let Taiwan go and they're telling me they're going to be there for me. But what's really going to happen? Because our necks are on the line. So it's going to be a very desperate situation in a lot of ways. In fact, one of the things I worry about is that if we lost Taiwan, we would have to do such crazy things to compensate for its loss, like make Vietnam an ally or something that's actually far more ill-advised. And so I think that's like what we want. We don't want to get into that situation. We're much better off we can hold the line. The other thing is, you know, Taiwan is an island, obviously. It's 100 miles off the coast of China. Our wheelhouse as Americans, is naval, aerospace, high technology warfare. We're, that's where we want to, we don't want to get in a land war in Asia. We don't want to have to sort of start trying to beg the Vietnamese or the Thais or the Malaysians to, to come into our coalition much more. We want to stick, the Taiwans are, they don't want to live under Chinese rule. They're an island. You know, that's, that's, that's a strong position. And so that, that gets to one of the the points that you know you you've been making, and I think a lot of the work you've done, both in government and out, has focused on what is the right U.S. military force structure to deal with a great power competition over the long term. And, and I think the national defense strategy set the predicate for that. And a lot of the work you've done in the book has built on on some of that thinking. I'd be curious in this discussion both how you would apply some of the thinking about U.S. military force structure to this discussion, but also how should Taiwan be thinking about its force structure given the context that you just laid out? Right. Well, I think it's a great question. I mean, I think realistically we need to think about our defense together because Taiwan on its own, it's a hopeless cause, right? I mean, if, if Taiwan is, is left alone by America, I think the PLA will, will crush them. But I think what's become increasingly clear, starting under the you know Trump administration, but I think the Biden administration, to its credit, has been pretty clear about this. You know, the U.S. very likely will come to Taiwan's defense if it's attacked by China. And in fact, Beijing appears to assess that that's very likely. I mean, if we look at it, the signals coming out of China, including like you know missile, what appear to be like preemptive missile strikes, practice missile strikes on ship mock-ups in the Western desert and so forth. Like if a ship's in port, it's probably not, it's probably a surprise attack, right? <laughs> like sort of tells you, you know, I think we need to think about it together, but they're different roles. So, you know, the reality is that, you know, as part of the, the, the shift in, in recognition to Beijing and so forth, there's no U.S. forces on Taiwan or, you know, significant forces on Taiwan. I guess the journal is reporting some things, but, you know, there's not a big force there. U.S. forces in the Western Pacific have not adapted enough, despite a lot of tr attempts, you know, still concentrated in a couple of these bases that the Chinese have very zeroed in. So, you know, the U.S. effort is going to take some time to get mobilized. I mean, speed is, 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 is of the essence for the U.S., and that's one of the things we really worked on in the national defense strategy was this idea of a blunt layer, you know, to deny a fait accompli, deny a fast move by China. But there's only so much we can do. You know, it's going to take us time to generate. It's going to take us time to move forces and stuff. What Taiwan needs to do is really, you know, it's there. There are 20, whatever, 24, 23 million people on Taiwan. It has a sophisticated military. It needs to make itself as resilient and kind of lethal and nasty a proposition as possible, both to provide a direct defense against a Chinese invasion, 
but also to buy time and space for American forces to be more effective. So the thing is that the more Taiwan does in its own, in its own, um, to its own benefit, in, in its own defense, the more likely an American defense is. You know, it's not going to supplant because the Chinese are so powerful and so strong. There's plenty for both of us to do together. Taiwan's most ill-advised course is to do nothing in the hopes that the Americans will just pull their chestnuts out of the fire. In that case, it will probably exceed that threshold I was talking about, that ex- you know, not existential threshold. Whereas if Taiwan is this kind of, you know, follows the overall defense concept or something like it, and it's, you know, prickly with uh, anti-ship cruise missiles and sea mines and surface air missiles and cyber defenses and, you know, all these kinds of things, well then, you know, American forces can kind of operate with that and then really deliver the sort of the knockout punch. You could think of the Taiwan efforts as kind of jabs and so forth. And then the knockout punch on a Chinese invasion is going to be, of course, capabilities that Taiwan just can't muster. So, you know, to the point about what would be most effective for Taiwan, I mean, the, you know, my personal experience has been uh, both in government and, and writing things outside of government that there's a lot of resistance, not necessarily on the political side, but more on the military side in Taiwan to the type of asymmetric investments that it sounds like you agree, uh, and I certainly feel would be most efficacious for them to, to invest in now, um, both as a deterrent. Uh, and I'm, I'm thinking of things like, you know, making sure that there are Stinger missiles, for instance, that could be dispersed across the country that would make China concerned that there, there would be, you know, it would be very difficult for them to, to do airlift operations and, and air assault and things like that. So, you know, there are a lot of things that could be done as a deterrent, but also things that could be very useful from an asymmetric standpoint for war fighting. I mean, help me kind of unpack what, what those sorts of things are from your perspective. Oh, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think, you know, air assault, for instance, is a real concern. I mean, both, I guess, aircraft, airplanes, but also helicopters, you know, and I mean, a stinger or something equivalent, whatever the contemporary technology is going to be, is, I mean, that's really dangerous, you know, I mean, and that's going to, and in a minimum, even if you don't shoot down, it's the same effect that happens with our carriers. If they know that there's a bunch of, you know, man pads or whatever it is running around the island, not to mention those of, you know, designated air defense forces, that's going to, that's going to make them a lot more worried and a lot more concerned. And it's going to raise their thresholds. Um, I mean, I feel like, I think from the American side, there's large agreement that this needs to happen. The sort of, the, the problem appears to be the institutional inertia within the Taiwan military, I guess, certain parts of the political system. I mean, to your point, my impression is that, that President Tsai and others like Foreign Minister Wu get the need to shift. Um, but there's institutional resistance. I think we need to start pulling out all the stops. And I was saying this on Twitter a couple months ago that like we should be thinking about bringing serious pressure down on Taiwan because there's American lives that are at stake too. And I don't think we should just let like, I mean, I, I don't care. I'm looking out for Americans, right? I don't care what some Taiwanese general wants or thinks is, you know, cool or whatever it is. I mean, not to be too flippant, but I mean, I think that's where we are. And frankly, if I were a Taiwanese voter who didn't want to live under Xi Jinping, which I assume is almost everybody who's not like actively working for the Chinese, I would be livid at these, you know, I mean, frankly, there's a sort of a Gilbert and Sullivan general phenomenon here where it's like, are you kidding me? I mean, if I, you know, I mean, if I were Taiwanese, I would be like, let's quintuple the defense budget. I don't want to live under Xi Jinping. 
I mean, I said to them, said to some of them recently, I was like, do you have an extrication plan? When I was growing up in Hong Kong, a lot of the Hong Kong Chinese had a second passport, like a Canadian passport, because they didn't know what was going to happen after 1997. And frankly, that caution was borne out in the end. And, you know, I don't know, do a lot of Taiwanese, are they just thinking they're going to, I don't know where they're going to move. But I mean, a lot of those people, presumably, you know, more, more politically active ones or ones who've said negative things about the Communist Party or the PRC, I don't think it's going to be comfortable living under under China. So I just, I mean, I, and I think the American, you know, I mean, this is of a piece with how I think about how we should deal with our allies in general, which is like, you know, this is like, this is not like a, like a, this is not like a, like a love affair. This is like closer to like a close business partnership, you know, where it's like, we're supposed to both pull our weight and do our part. Yes. There's like a lot of tradition and there's contract and all that. But like, you know, at the end of the day, if you're not pulling your weight, like there needs to be a conversation. And, you know, it's, it's like an old school business partnership, you know, like a private business partnership, you know, like not a publicly traded company. And, you know, Taiwan is not, just manifestly is not doing this. I mean, I don't know why they don't have, aren't spending 10% of their GDP on defense. Like, oh, I guess that's unrealistic. Well, okay. I mean, but, you know, if you continue on this trajectory, uh, what could be very realistic is li living under, you know, martial law. I mean, people are, you know, there are people on Taiwan who complain about the Kuomintang martial law. Well, I mean, there's going to be a replica if the PRC takes over. So I, you know, to me, I think, I think Americans are doing a real disservice by not being clear enough, but at the same time, we've also got to help and support and enable. And so that means being willing to put arm sales on the table, you know, move them to the top. And you know, this very well, move them to the top of the, you know, the, the arms transfer or, our, you know, FMF or SMA. I mean, forget selling to like the Egyptians, whatever, who, who's going to attack Egypt that matters to us. Taiwan needs to be number one all the time. And if they're willing to do it, we need to help them. Um, but this, there's some legislation, Senator Hawley's legislation, I think really, um, and some others I think have gotten on, you know, where it conditional, con conditionalizes and actually talks about if Taiwan increases defense spending, I believe that we will, we will pitch in more money. I think that's the kind of, you know, interest-based conditionalized model where, you know, we're going to help, but we're also going to bring, bring pressure and bring conditions. Yeah, no, there, there's definitely a, I think a realization in the USG uh, across parties and across departments and agencies that we've, we've got to move towards more of a, a asymmetric porcupine approach. The political class in Taiwan, at least in the DPP, President Tsai, the foreign minister, people like York Chen seem to seem to get it. I think that there's some resistance in the the old career military folks that that just continues to to grind down um, some of some of the best suggestions that our side makes. And and that's I agree with you. That's that's the problem is that they shouldn't have to be suggestions. They should be they should be embraced with with both hands. Um, I mean, I think I think like anything should be on the table from I mean, I think we've been trying we've been going around this issue for a decade now and you still get these same as you, I agree with you. And it's like if if we're thinking of fighting a war for these people, you know, alongside these people, then all then we should be thinking about, you know, making their life tougher too. They, they, there should be like whether they're direct or indirect kind of and I mean, small sanction, like small s sanctions, but penalties. Like, are there things that Taiwan wants or that, you know, that we should not be giving them, that we should not be like acting as if it's normal, you know, like if, if this is serious, which I believe it is, it is deadly serious. We want to leave no stone unturned to get them to do what needs to happen. And I just, 
I find it completely unsatisfactory that we're sort of, ah, not you, but I mean, like, there's this sense like, ah, we try with the Taiwans, but ah, you know, bureaucratic politics. And it's like, well, okay, well then let's, <laughs> let's change their incentive structure. Yeah. Couldn't agree with you more. And actually, I wanted to ask you to, to the point about trying to figure out what's the best way for the U.S. to be thinking about, uh, you know, Taiwan's interests and, and our interests and Taiwan's interests and, and how do they intersect? You know, I've always made the point, and this is a little, this is more to alliance management than it is to, to straight defense. But, you know, I've always made the point, particularly in government, that one of our interests uh, is to make sure that Taiwan has diplomatic allies. You know, they've got a handful, a little over a dozen left. It looks like Honduras may be one that shifts. Mostly small developing countries. A lot of them are strategic countries for us because a lot of them are small Pacific islands that, that matter to the United States for different reasons. You know, there's a lot, there's a, and I've always been curious your thoughts on this. There's a debate in the USG about how hard the US should try to keep those formal diplomatic allies aligned with, uh, with Taiwan in the face of Beijing's pressure campaign to switch recognition. From where you sit, looking at the, the kind of big picture strategic balance, does it matter? Is that something that the U.S. should be exerting calories on to try and keep these small developing countries on sides with, with Taiwan? I don't think so. Um, I mean, I, I don't think we should like encourage them to switch, but I would say a couple things. I mean, one is the everything that Beijing does that's provocative, we should respond not symmetrically like in the diplomatic context, but by using it as an excuse to strengthen Taiwan's defense. So like, you know, if they switch Honduras, we shouldn't like try to get Paraguay or whatever to switch back. We should, we should, use that political capital that Beijing has caused a controversy to sell them more weapons or think about, you know, more exercises with Taiwanese military. Cause that's the, that's the whole nub of the problem. The other thing is that I think, I actually think Beijing's putting itself in a bit of a, I don't know if cul-de-sac is the right term, but like into an interesting position, which is like, <laughs> if I, if I were thinking about Taiwan being an independent country, which I'm not, I mean, it's not my, it's not, it's not a bottom line concern for the United States, but like having nobody recognize uh, the Taiwan, the government on Taiwan as the Republic of China would seem to strengthen the idea that, that Taiwan is either what Beijing prefers, which is a province, or that it has independent. Like, I mean, I would assume that in their heart of hearts, you know, independence activists on Taiwan would love to remove the fiction that the government on Taiwan represents, you know, the government of China, right? So, I mean, if if I were actually in Beijing, I'd probably I'd probably argue not to to turn too many, which I think was one of the reasons for their caution over the time. They 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 wanted to preserve this fiction, but I I don't know if they just kind of are on Wolf Four here autopilot or or what. Um, but I actually, you know, I, I again, as I say, I look at from the Americans' interests. Like I don't, I mean, I think between the status quo and independence, it's you know, I, I look at it kind of from a detached point of view. And of course, there are huge downsides for for supporting independence. Now, if China does certain things, we may have to count. We have, may have to consider that, um, but but I don't look at it. I'm just kind of talking about it, kind of empirically, and and from that perspective. So I don't, I don't, I don't think. I think our all of to, to kind of use your terminology. I think all of our calories, all of our 
you know, lifting weights should be on the, the direct defense of the island because that if we get that right, everything else is manageable. But if we get it wrong, we're, nothing else will matter. And it's really at issue. Yeah. So so here's we, we've only got a few minutes left here. Here's a hypothetical scenario for you. So a new president is sworn in in 2025 or Joe Biden's reinaugurated or Kamala Harris becomes president or Governor DeSantis or President Trump or any anyone you want to name, regardless of party, takes office in January 2025. And they're confronted with a new kind of continuing continuation of the same hostility, the same aggression that we've seen. Uh, and they're looking at China having continued over the last th- you know, preceding three years, expanding its capabilities, expanding its belligerence. What are the first things that you would advise a new president to do to strengthen both the U.S. posture in the region and by, I think, from everything we're talking about, Taiwan's posture is concomitant to that and its strength. So what what are the immediate things you would advise a new president to do along those lines? The most important thing is is military capability. You know, I mean I mean at the end of the day that's that that's not about what what people say, it's about what people can do or countries can do. And you know, we according to these, you know, war games, quote unquote, that didn't float around the press, we're losing. And but on the other end, the people the thing that people don't uh, mention as much is that we actually know how to win increasingly, but we're not buying those things. So I would just make sure that we're buying all of those things. And we, to me, that that being able to defend Taiwan has got to be the top scenario for our military. So if I were you know advising the president, I'd say, Mr. President, you should send like an executive order or whatever, not executive order, like a you know national security directive or whatever out saying, I want you to do this now and make sure that I'm satisfied and come back to me in like a month, you know, and tell me what you've done to, and give me your 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 steps, you know, um, which you know, has been tried before uh, to some extent, um, but you know that's that's government, as you know. Um, I would I would t- I would probably tone I would tone down the publicity around Taiwan that the Biden. I actually think in certain ways the Biden administration's. I, I think it's good that they're talking about Taiwan and their support. It is very good that they're doing that, but they they've really elevated Taiwan's profile. Like with um, the summit of the summit of the democracies thing that Biden put on, or some of the you know the comments on rock solid and all the discussion without actually strengthening the, the, the hammer so much. Like, and my view is the Teddy Roosevelt one, which is like speak softly, but carry a big stick. Once we're in a good military position, (laughs) then we can afford to tick off Beijing more. But what doesn't make a lot of sense is to sort of like prod the dragon when we're not where we need to be. And I don't, I don't say that as if Taiwan is vulnerable right now. I don't, I don't think so. I mean, General Milley said recently that he was very confident the United States could defend Taiwan if, if it wanted. So, you know, I think that's important to factor in right now. But I would say that that's, that would be the real, the real focus. And then I would, you know, diplomatically in terms of relations with Taiwan, I would be like, look, like we will help you and support you to the max when you do the right thing. But we are going to, you know, I'm going to, if you're not doing things and you're continuing to let things uh, that's not you're not you're putting American lives at risk, and I'm going to make you feel it, you know. And we're I'm going to reexamine the relationship, where, you know, if there are things that you're getting from America, you know, I don't know, like maybe there are certain goods that are tariff free or could be, you know, like that. I mean, I think that's legitimate. I mean, we're talking about a lot of Americans dying here, so like, let's let's get this right and dying for the benefit of Taiwan. Um, so everything should essentially be on the table, but I would hope, I mean, I, I, my impression is similar that president Tsai at least, um, wants to, wants to do this. Um, but in a sense, this would be giving her more 
more ammunition and those like her, I'm, I'm sure there are many on the other, you know, throughout the political spectrum who agree, but I think that's the kind of approach I'd take. Yeah. So final question, when you think about where, where we are uh, with the U.S., with Taiwan, with U.S., uh, China relations. One of the one of the regular uh, commentaries that's been coming out in the last month has been, you know, as part of that, what's going on in Ukraine is a direct uh, analog to deterrence as it relates to to Taiwan. And the U.S. response, the Western European response, is supposedly being viewed in Beijing as uh, an indication of how the U.S. and its allies and partners would respond to a Chinese aggression against Taiwan. Do you, do you think that's a fair analogy? Is that something that policymakers should actually be, should we be viewing the Kiev situation in the same context as, as Taipei? How do you look at it? No, I don't. I think that it's similar to the Afghanistan thing. I mean, I, th- I thought the Afghanistan withdrawal was right. I thought it was catastrophically handled. But I mean, the, the thing that we've lost kind of touch with as, as an American political discussion is like the reality of just like material constraints, you know, that it's not all about symbolism and willpower. Like sometimes you just don't have enough to go around. And that's the situation we are in now for the first time since the Cold War. Like if you do more over there, you can't do more over here, you know? And so I think, you know, it's clear that I'm sure Xi Jinping and the Chinese leadership are observing how we're behaving in Afghanistan and Ukraine and so forth and taking stock. But I don't think it's as direct as is often portrayed that it's like, oh, if we don't stand strong in Ukraine, they'll think we're weak and they'll go in. Actually, like to the contrary, I think the more involved we are, if we get over involved in Ukraine, that's much more likely to precipitate action because we won't have enough to go around. We know that. Um, So I think what what I think is, I mean, we have to prioritize Asia, so we can't do as much in the middle, nearly as much in the Middle East or in Europe. We have to reduce in Europe, over, you know, actually pretty significantly over time, and have the Europeans step up. President Trump was right about that, um, but we have to. Um, but we, I, I think they're also. I mean, this gets in a little bit of you know personalities, so it's harder. You know, I just kind of want to be fair, but I mean, I think there, where it does travel, is perceptions about the nature of. President Biden, his leadership team, how they make decisions, how they follow through on what they say um, in a kind of more tactical sense. That's what I think travels. Like, I think what's traveled from the Afghanistan situation is assessments about how this team operates, you know, maybe about how, you know, U.S. writ large, you know, follows through on things versus what we, what we pledge, you know, although I think it was more contingent, you know, I think it could have been handled much better. That's, you know, I mean, I think like, you know, one of the things I read on, on what the president, you know, it's very clear to me that Biden is committed deeply to the transatlantic relationship. And that tells me, and it probably tells them in China that despite the talk about the reorientation towards the Pacific, Biden's heart is really in the Atlantic. And that's like, you know, the, the team, you can kind of get that vibe. That's actually more dangerous in a way. So what I think, you know, what I'm missing right now in a lot of the discussion in the United States is this acknowledgement that we're, we need to be operating from a situation of constraint, but also dealing with these, these challenges. I mean, the Russians are nasty operators, but, you know, we don't have enough 
money and stuff to go around. We've known that, and yet we're operating like that's not that's not a reality. So, so I'm going to take moderator's uh, prerogative and ask you one more question because you that that answer to that question and, and the overall discussion about resources catalyzes something that I think particularly the next Republican administration, but all administrations really are going to have to grapple with for a long time, which is if we're in a global competition with China, um, set aside the Middle East, set aside Iran and, and Russia, even if you just focus on China, the competition is global. Even though there's obviously, as, as you make very eloquently the case in your book, that Taiwan and, and the Indo-Pacific more, more focused is the main arena of that competition, we're seeing tentacles of it from the Western Hemisphere to the polar, the polar regions to even Europe and Africa. How do you say, you know, given what you, you've written and, and how you think about the main theater of competition, how do you advise folks to look at the, the ancillary areas of competition, whether it's Africa or the Western Hemisphere, as part of that, that kind of prioritization of resources? Right. So that's a great question. Um, what I would say is that I think the, the key theater is Asia. We have to get Asia right. If we get Asia right, everything else will fall is manageable. But the, vice, the opposite is not true. So that, and we've got to orient our hard power and, and real political capital to Asia. That's where we need to go. So like, obviously there's military investments, but things like Katza sanctions on India are incredibly dumb. Like India is much more important and the relationship with India vis-a-vis -vis China is much more important than anything that's going on in Europe with Katza. Like it's just, it's crazy what we're doing, right? So like, that's an example. What this means though, it's not that the rest of the world isn't important, but it means that the rest of the world is in fact to the contrary, but it's gonna have to operate in that reality of constraint. And so actually where I'm coming out now is that we're going to need even more creativity in these secondary and tertiary theaters. So for instance, in Europe, you have the reflexive, the transatlantic crowd is like, put more troops in. And they're, they're not grappling or, you know, Frank McKenzie at CENTCOM for years, give me more forces. That's the opposite of what we need. We need people who understand the overall strategic logic and the reality of constraint, but can still deal with plausible you know, plausible approaches to deal with the problem. So for instance, like, you know, an obvious way is kind of convening coalitions. The Abraham Accords are a perfect example where it's like, we're going to try to get out of the Middle East more, but we're not going to just leave a vacuum and we're going to help people. So there's going to be the political convening, but then there's, we're going to sell F-35s, the Emiratis to sweeten the deal, to give them more capability. We're not going to sanction them, even though we dis disagree with how they treat people, you know, potentially. Uh, you know, and that sort of thing. So I think that's going to be, that's going to take a real change in mindset. So it's, it's less that the Asia context, you know, there it's almost like, it's like gravitational, like things are very, you know, it's kind of like big blocks, like there's China, Japan, India, you know, but, but like in Europe, there's going to be a lot more sort of fuzziness going around and we're going to, but we're going to need people who understand the overall context and say, okay, how do I deal with this problem even though I can't just get whatever I want in the way that has been the case for the last generation? And that's maybe generational, you know? Like, I think a lot of people who are probably over the age of about, you know, I don't know, 50 or something who just, it's just too hard. I mean, I think the president, I mean, my impression is that I just don't think he actually thinks that China is that much. I think the real perspective he has is the China come on man from 2019. You know, whereas someone like Sullivan seems to have more of a, a sense, but you know, he's not where the, the weight of, of sort of the 
obviously he's not the president. Yeah. Well, Bridge Colby, thank you so much for uh, being part of the program. Thanks for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Alex. And great to be on with you and your listeners.